as kids, we used to hitchhike all the time. One day, this interesting man picked up my brother Randy, thumbing home from a game for Casella Coal Company back in the summer of 1971, just after the West Virginia Governor Hewlett Smith was reinvestigating the history of Nancy Hanks. He was wearing his ball uniform and carrying his cleats along with my old baseball glove. He was a pitcher for Casella Cole in the Babe Ruth Baseball League in Buckhannon, West Virginia. During his ride, Mr. Comstock asked Randy if he had ever heard of the newspaper West Virginia Hillbilly. My brother said, yes. He and a civics teacher talked about how excellent it was and that it was actually sold all over the world. They kept talking. Then they pulled over at the top of the road where we lived, and after telling Randy who he was, he lifted the back door of his station wagon, which was full of his latest book, The Best of the West Virginia Hillbilly. He gave Randy a copy of his book and wrote in it, saying, to a smart boy who someday will make something of himself. That was so cool. I think if Jim Comstock would have known that we were related to Peter Hardiman, he would have flipped out, and I'm sure my brother too. Randy found out later that Mr. Comstock had been working for Governor Smith on the Nancy Hanks case. If so... Who is this guy named James Franklin Comstock? Welcome, my friends, to the Jamie Lee Show. Our story today is an episode about James Franklin Comstock, a man who was born February 25th, 1911, in Richwood, West Virginia. James, or Jim, as his friends called him, was a West Virginia writer a newspaper publisher, and humorist. He founded the weekly West Virginia Hillbilly that was published in 1957 through 1980, and he compiled a definitive 51-volume encyclopedia of West Virginia history and culture. The West Virginia Hillbilly was a newspaper for people who can't read, edited by an editor, who can't write. The Hillbilly wasn't just a newspaper. It was an art project, a platform for historic preservation, a conservative wailing wall, and above all, an exploration of the West Virginian ID. Once, in early spring, Jim famously added ramp oil to the ink at the printing press a tribute to Richwood's Feast of the Ramson, which celebrates the wild leeks that sprout in the mountains 
after a hard winter. They give off a terrible stench. Warehouses full of mailmen were made to gag. To his delight, Jim received a stern rebuke from the Postmaster General. Now, we're the only newspaper under orders from the federal government not to smell bad, Jim told the Associated Press. The hillbilly, brimming with social and political commentary, was governed by a prankster spirit, mocking the do-it-yourself craze of the 70s. Jim printed an ad for a remove-your-own-appendix kit and received serious inquiries from as far away as Britain. Jim has been one of the few to capture West Virginia's humor. Absurd, fatalistic, in print. His politics were terrifying. He loathed the New Deal and opposed new mining safety regulations on the grounds they were burdensome to small coal operators. But he had a point when he remarked that West Virginians never felt impoverished or backward until the outside world told us about our depravity. Jim had the look of a Presbyterian elder, lean, puckered, and with thinning white hair and undertaker suits. You won't find a picture of him smiling. A tight-fisted child of the Depression and a Former teacher at Richwood High School, he was an unlikely newspaper man, but not an ineffective one. Even with his precarious finances, the hillbilly survived for decades with Jim and his protege, Bronson McClung, raising hell week in and week out. To raise money, Jim offered the first subscribers 25-year subscriptions for $25 apiece. At its height, circulation reached 30,000, with many subscribers out of state or abroad. Of Richwood's 3,000 residents, Jim claimed, only 19 held subscriptions. Jim Comstock had two newspapers, the Richwood News Leader for money and the West Virginia Hillbilly for fun and money. Back in the day, the law required that each county or judicial circuit post certain legal ads in newspapers of opposite politics. So Jim and Bronson McClung's newsleader was the Republican paper, and the Nicholas County Chronicle was the Democrat paper. You are from a small town, so you well know you have to have moral courage or suffer from narcissism to write anything meaningful in a small-town paper. Jim did and was not the most popular guy in the county. He was a true believer in West Virginia. He pushed to save Pearl S. Buck's home place and other historic buildings. When Richwood's clothespin factory was set to close because of foreign competition, he called on every politician he knew in an attempt to save it. Despite his free market ways, he organized nature walks to see the rare Arctic plants of Cranberry Glades, now a protected botanical area. Most important, he channeled the existence of those West Virginians who, who donned shoes, as he would say, who had gone to college and wriggled above our station to become country lawyers and newspaper writers, dentists and nurses, bureaucrats and mine engineers. 
We straddled both worlds, enjoying our brick homes and security, but never quite sure where we fit into the scheme, so we laughed at ourselves, which was acceptable. We were too sophisticated for the holler-up Hominy Creek, but Yankees still laughed at us, no matter how much they coveted our electoral votes and our cheap coal. Here's a story about the painter that Jim wrote in The Hillbilly. Some old-timers are still ticked off about Jim's most elaborate caper, but it must be recorded for posterity. As in all West Virginia tales, there are conflicting versions of what happened, but all involve the painter, a.k.a. panther, mountain lion, or cougar, that roamed the West Virginia mountains until the late 19th century when it was extirpated under the bounty system. But rumors of its existence have persisted. It is our Yeti, the editor of the neighboring county's paper, a hillbilly rival, was particularly vocal in his claims that the painter still walked these hills. But Jim was a realist, and painter fantasies were not for him. One day he received a visit from a man involved with a pathetic little zoo, soon to be shuttered, and he had a panther. If the buyer didn't turn up, he was going to have it put to sleep. The gears began to turn. Jim called up a local mountain man and told him about the situation, working the angle that this marvelous beast must live on, and besides, wasn't the volunteer fire department, of which the trapper was a charter member, short on cash? They brokered the panther's sale, and the mountain man put it in a cage on Kennison Mountain. That afternoon, Jim brought several men to see it. The news nearly tore the town in two. The Kennison Mountain Panther was put on display at the firehouse, and they charged admission for a quarter. That's the same one broken to my chicken coop. It ran across the highway last year, but I didn't want to tell anybody. None of you would have believed me. I almost shot it in deer season. I didn't pull the trigger. When word got out that it was all a fake, there was much gnashing of teeth and rending of hair, and even worse, my source tells me when a fellow is laughed at enough, he will strike out. The local dentist and sawbones made a lot of money off the fights that occurred. It's still a very sensitive topic. Jim was always pulled between civic engagement and pure devilment. As my grandma would say, he embarrassed everyone, yes, but at least that Richwood fire truck would keep on shining. Jim, the Arco conservative, arranged for the Panther to live out its retirement at French Creek Game Farm, a state-run zoo. Here's another story from the West Virginia hillbilly, called The Case of Old Blue. In the early 80s, Jim and his law partner, Steve Davis, got sewn up in some hard-hitting journalism, courtesy of the hillbilly. The law firm is a money-making proposition, but Jim's and Steve would sometimes take up cases that would be classified as entertainment. Jim was out when an angry hunter appeared. He had bought a defective coon dog. Guy told me it run straight coon, he said. Hell, it run off chasing deer every night. 
Now, a well-trained hound is a pricey thing. Even then, one could demand a couple of thousand dollars. You wanted one that ran straight coon, so it wouldn't lead you after foxes, deer, and other undesirables in the night. Steve asked to see the dog, and by the time Jim returned, it was too late. The firm of Breckenridge, Davis, Nall, and Sproils had taken on the case of Old Blue. There was no written contract, but the client had purchased Old Blue for $300 and a good pump shotgun. After a few botched hunts and frustrating nights, the client had gone to the coon dog impresario and demanded his money back as well as his gun. Let the buyer beware, said the man. Besides, the money had already been spent. Inevitably, the hillbilly was out in force at the Nicholas County Courthouse on the day of Old Blue's trial. Well, they included a picture of the proceedings, and you can see the bailiff leading Old Blue in front of the council. The magistrate found all this entertaining until Old Blue, being displayed to the jury, paused to pee on the base of the flag. The magistrate was perturbed, not so much by the hound's sedition, but the circumstances. It was a new courtroom with good carpeting. Steve called local good old boy Clenny Workman as a character witness for Old Blue. The buyer had also complained that Old Blue wouldn't bark. And, of course, a man can't follow a non-barking hound through the night. Clenny, a hunter of great renown, took the stand and claimed the impresario had whooped the bark out of it. Well, much jumping up and shouting then, the bailiff had to calm the place down. A man had been impunged as a dog abuser. In the end, partly, and thanks to Clenny Workman's reputation as a man who knows a good dog when he sees one, the magistrate found in favor of the buyer. Though it was a partial victory, he was refunded the gun, but not the money, and the impresario took back old blue. No one was pleased, except for the reporter from the hillbilly, who had documented the trial with vigor of the post covering Watergate. In a winter 2000 issue of the state publication, Golden Seal, Clinty Workman mentions the case as one of the highlights of a life spent among hounds. The article is titled, Straight Talk on Coon Dogs. Steve says, I saw him not long afterward at the Go-Mart. He was driving a little VW Beetle. I complimented him on the expertise in dog flesh. He said, oh, I got a top-notch coon dog now. He pops the hood, and this big hound was laying all squished down in the VW trunk in front. After a little admiration and relief for the dog, he slammed the hood down again. And so goes a couple stories of the West Virginia Hillbilly by James Comstock. The West Virginia Hillbilly, which became a celebrated repository of Appalachian folklore, heritage, and humor. 
Comstock characterized his publication as a newspaper for people who can't read, edited by an editor who can't write. James Franklin Comstock died at St. Mary's Hospital in Huntington, West Virginia at the age of 85. Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes our episode of this fascinating man from Richwood, West Virginia, named James Franklin Comstock. This is Jamie Lee. Thanks for listening, because the best day of my life is right here with you. And as we close, here's some West Virginia mountain music. When I go, don't cry for me in my father's arms I'll be When just a word left on my soul will be healed and I'll be Now